So in the summer of 2018, the tour bus that we and a group of about 40-some people were on was kind of hunting to find the right gear to get us up the hill into the Golan Heights, which is the furthest, most northern part of modern-day Israel. And we were on a tour that the church had sent our family on to go and see the Holy Land and walk in the, in the streets and the, the places where Jesus walked. It was a powerful experience. And at that point in my life, that was the furthest I'd ever been from home. And it felt very far. In fact, we got to go up to a UN watchtower because that is a place that is um, full of lots of political skirmishes and whatnot. And I pulled out my phone and I was... Um, you know, if you go to Google Maps, you'll see a blue dot that shows you where you are on a GPS location. And it was humbling to me to see the dot and a little frightening and see words like Beirut and Damascus, like literally Syria, Lebanon, and Israel all right there. And I took a screenshot of it because I, I was just very far afoot. You know, um, that is a very interesting place. And I think at that point in his earthly ministry, that was the furthest Jesus had ever been from his home as well. I'm not counting when he was a baby and went to Egypt, but as an adult in his ministry, he went the furthest up to the north at that point, and something really important happened there. That is where Mount Hermon is, and as we came back down the mountain on the bus, we stopped at this like 1,500-year-old monastery, which in and of itself is of interest. But I stood in the parking lot looking at the mountains around us, wondering, one of these mountains is the one that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up, and he became transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah showed up and talked to, talked to him and, and them there. And God's glory was revealed on that mountain. It happens in the very next chapter of Mark's gospel. Somewhere up there, that happened. And today we're in this part, this key moment in Mark's gospel where, as some say, the drama of Mark changes from scene one to scene two. It's a three-act three drama, as some have called it. The first part is Jesus's demonstration of the availability of the kingdom of God through signs and wonders and deliverance of demons and healing people. He did this around the Sea of Galilee, and then act two in this drama is the road to Jerusalem, where he began, it says in here, he began to teach them about his suffering. So he said it often. And then act three would be the actual passion of Christ, his death, and then resurrection. And right here is the moment of transition. So he's taken his followers far. I mean, it's probably two or more days walking up through those hills to get up to Mount Hermon and those peaks. He's 30 miles north of Capernaum, which is the top of the Sea of Galilee, and then he checks in with them. Hey, guys, who do people say that I am? And they speculate. Well, some, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then he turns to Peter and the disciples, and he says, and now you, who do you say that I am? You call me rabbi, but who do you think I am? Before I tell you what Peter said, and you probably know his answer, I want to make it more personal and ask you right now the question, who is Jesus to you? How would you answer that question? If somebody that was not a churchgoer said, who is Jesus to you? How would you answer it? A historical figure? Yes. The founder of Christianity? The guy that they talk about the most in church? All three of those things are true, for sure. But there's more that could be answered. A savior, one who died for my sins. My teacher, my rabbi, my Lord, the person I follow the closest friend I have, the one who I seek 
day after day, moment by moment. How, how do you answer that question? Who is Jesus to you? So what's interesting is Peter got the right answer, but he got it the wrong way. He had the wrong meaning. It's like in algebra in high school. If you copy your neighbor's answer and you have the right number, but all your work is wrong, you're wrong, right? The teacher will say, wrong, you cheated. You were the Christ. Yes, I am the Christ. You got that right, Peter, and the others. He was speaking for the others. But he didn't understand what that meant. He thought in terms of a geopolitical takeover where Jesus is about to usher in angels and the kingdom of God, and he's going to put every other ruler and Caesar and everyone in Rome down and establish his theocracy again right here on earth and do it with glory and power. He had no concept that the Christ meant was anointed to suffer. And so he was confused. He got the right answer, but he was going totally the wrong way to get there. Yes, I am the Christ, but I'm going to a cross. And that was tough. So when he told them this, Peter takes him aside and says, no, Lord, that will never happen to you. He couldn't imagine Jesus dying because he had seen all the wonders and signs and the power. And, you know, I imagine it's like he went, hey, Jesus, listen, that, no, you can't die. That'll never happen to you. And it says that Jesus turned and looked at the other disciples and then said, get behind me, Satan. Called Peter Satan. Peter is not Satan, but he had the, the words of Satan in his mouth. He was thinking wrongly. It's the same basic temptation that Satan did actually give Jesus in the beginning of his ministry. He went to Jesus and said, listen, all authority of these kingdoms is, is I have authority. If you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you right now. That's the easy road. I want, I want to offer you a way to get around that nasty cross and get right to glory. You can be in charge of this whole world. You just have to bow down and worship me. That's what Satan was offering. And in a sense, Peter was speaking a similar thing. No, no, Lord, you can never die. And he right away says, get behind me, Satan. And he said it to the whole group, because Peter was just saying what they all were thinking. You know, in, in, this, in Mark's gospel, only seven times does the title Christ occur. And one of them is really for us, not so much the rest. It, it's the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Anytime the word Christ came up, Jesus preferred to go to the title Son of Man, referring to Daniel 7, where one like a Son of Man would go before the Ancient of of Days and be given dominion and power and and rule. And people, the Jews then and many of us today, were expecting this, this powerful takeover, but they were not expecting it to go through a cross. They were not expecting it to go through death and suffering. I mean, Jesus has all the angels at his disposal. He's the Lord of all. But that's not how the gospel is going to work. And so this messianic secret where he, he forbid them to tell anyone that he was the Christ was in part because if his own disciples don't even understand what the Christ means, certainly the crowds that they would tell about it would not understand either. Everyone would be confused. So he just kept referring to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, when the high priest questions him later at the end, tell us, are you the Christ? He, he says, I adjure you by God. Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. But then he doesn't use that term. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in glory. And that was, at that point, he was condemned. And they, they sent him to the cross. But Jesus had this secret because they, they didn't understand. Here's the key point here. There is no crown without a cross. No crown without a cross. And we want to do everything we can to get around the cross because it makes us uncomfortable we hate suffering. We don't, we don't like that. 
And I know you guys have access now to all sorts of preaching, and I would encourage you, sure, listen, watch online, listen to other sermons, all kinds of stuff. Ask yourself, is the cross the central point of this message? Because there is a whole lot of preaching out there that completely misses the cross. And that's like buying a brand new car with all the bells and whistles and no engine in it. It will go nowhere. And Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. That is the message. That is the central and the most essential part of Christianity. And if there's no cross, you've lost the whole thing. There is no crown without a cross. And that's true of us as well as Jesus. The cross is the way to glory, and life comes through death. This is one of those backwards things about the gospel. If you want to save it, you have to lose it. And whoever tries to, tries to keep it will end up losing it. If you try to hold on to your life, you can't keep it. If you're willing to let it go, then you get life. It's so backwards to our thinking. Take up your cross, Jesus says. He then takes, he takes the guys and says, listen, if any of you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. That's what it means. We hear this on this side of the resurrection where we have crosses all over, but it would have sounded like this. Hey, listen, if you guys want to follow after me, go get yourself a noose and put it around your neck and come after me. That's what it would have felt like to them because the cross was an instrument of torture and death, a punishment. It was not a symbol of glory yet. And so they couldn't fathom what Jesus was talking about. It just was over, it was just too much. They thought he was speaking in figurative language, like it's going to take some work and effort. But he was actually talking about a literal death, actual blood, actual nails, real suffering. And he's saying, this is for you as well. And that's, that makes Christianity very tough. I didn't look the quote up, but I often think of it. I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left mostly untried. The minute it gets tough, just like the parable of the sower, and, and there's, there's persecution or hardship or suffering, a lot of people fall away from it. I want something easier. Isn't there another option? Is there, is there like plan B? I don't want the cross plan. Can I have the, the other option? And there's not another one. Christianity is a call to come and die. I came, it's, I came across this quote from uh, the scholar R.T. France in his commentary, so appropriate for Lent. He says this, what Jesus calls for here is a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. And a call to join the march to the place of execution follows appropriately from this. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolates for Lent. It is not the denial of something to the self. It is the denial of the self itself. That means bringing all of yourself to him and saying, I give it to you. I give you my entire life, Lord. Here it is. Have it. That's a kind of death. And through that comes a new kind of life. And what is on offer here is, in fact, a new kind of life. It's something that is otherworldly. It's divine. It's God's life in you. And it's worth giving everything for. You know, whoever, uh, Jesus, he lays out kind of a little proposition for you here. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, that's just simple economics. Think about it. You can have the entire world, but it'll just cost your soul. Would you take it? No, 
No, your soul is eternal. And, and the, the Greek word here is suke, which means soul, life, your essential being. It's where we get the word psychology or psyche. It's speaking of the whole person. You just have to give the whole person up and you can have the world. But guess what? You're an immortal being and this world is passing away. It's a bad deal. Don't take it. Now, the flip side of it is be willing to give that up and you'll get a new kind of life. Now, it's hard, yes, but it's good. I don't want this to sound like a woe is me. It's just, it's going to be tough, guys. There's something so much better that makes it worthwhile. Paul the Apostle says this in Galatians 2.20, and this is a verse worth, worth memorizing. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, meaning in the physical body in the world, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. He wasn't talking about literally on the cross, but he was talking about giving up himself completely to the one who did die on a cross out of love for him. And this is the call. This is the call to discipleship. Now, he's living a kind of life that is transformative. It's different. It is Christ at work in him. And you know, we're, I keep talking about the church in North America because it's on, main, on the mainline level, it's diminishing. Numbers are shrinking, churches are closing. People are talking about the death of Christianity and all this kind of stuff. It's not dying, but what is dying is religion, a religiosity that is missing this kind of call to discipleship. What a lost and dying world is so longing for is to see Christians who actually have God's power at work in them. They are different people, and they see something different in you. They recognize that God's power is at work in your life. That is what will get them. That is what will get people interested. They'll say, how can you live like that? And you'll say, it's God at work in me, but I had to give it all to him. And then a whole new life came in. So let me ask you this discipleship question. It's a hard one. Is there anything in your heart or your life that is unfit for Jesus? That if he were to be living your life, that he couldn't do it because it just doesn't fit with his kingdom. And I guess instead of saying, is there anything, I should say, what is the thing? Because we all fall short, all of us. So there are things in every one of our lives that don't line up, that are unfit for Jesus. What is that thing? You know what it is. I know what it is in my life. If we're honest, we know what it is. This is the place where God's power is most needed. For you, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your primary business with him taking it to him. And it might be years of taking the same thing to him, going, God, I need help right here. I need your power at this thing in my life to become more like you. This is your main topic for prayer. This is your discipleship leading edge. And if you're doing that business with God, I'm telling you, his life will come into your life in a new way that will get the attention of people around you. So I want want to invite you to join in the fight for your transformation. It is God who is at work in you, but you have things to work out in that. And the world so badly wants to see the power of God. And it's trying to find that in every other way except him. And what the church offers is this transforming life. Jesus is saying, this is what I have. One of the authors that I got to hear speak a number of years ago is a guy named Hugh Halter. He's a church planter guy. He's in, he was in the Pacific Northwest and got burned out of doing church, and he went to, he was a house painter, and he moved to Colorado, and he's just painting houses for a living. And um, he, but he was called by God, and he was a Christian, and he had a heart for people, and he started collecting people in his house and doing sort of house church. And this grew into a thing across his town in Colorado, where I think at one point, there might even be more now, uh, there were 350 house churches that were all meeting for church. 
And they would gather every other Sunday for a big event and like rent a school and do like a worship service. But it was like the kind of church he burned out in. And when he noticed that people were coming kind of somewhat regularly but weren't plugged into the house church part of it, because he's a really good preacher and they had good music, he would, once he saw four or five Sundays like this, he would take that person out to coffee and he'd say, hey, it's great that you're coming. Um, I know the music's good and you, you seem to be responding to the message, but there are lots of good churches in Colorado that have good music and good preaching. And I want you to know what we're about. I'm inviting you to come and die with us. That is our invitation. If you're just coming for good music and good preaching, go to another church, please. If you want to come and die with us, then I want you here. And let me show you what that looks like. I mean, talk about a newcomer's class, right? <laughs> but that's actually the invitation. And we don't like it. But if you want to get to the new life, it's going to come through a kind of death. And if you want the crown of glory that Jesus says he shares with his people, it's going to come through a cross. There is no crown without the cross. I keep thinking of this David Crowder song. It's not really a song. It's just like one verse from a different song, but it's on a, an album called Collision, where it's, which is sort of an artistic piece that he did. And it's, it's got this scratchy, old-timey record sound. And then he plays his guitar and he sings. And it sounds like he's singing into a can. It's meant to sound like, like a 1940s recording. And he sings, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. And he's, I didn't realize it at the time, but he's, it's a, actually a Loretta Lynn song, and I went and listened to that, and she sings about that. We all want the glory, and we don't want the cross. We all want the easy way. We want to find some way around it, and there just isn't. This is the call to discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is you've got to put yourself to death. You've got to bring yourself to him and say, I'm going to surrender it to you. Have it all. Come and heal me. Work on the stuff. And his power is available to transform you but it requires surrender and a regular surrendering in your life. This is over and over and over again. That's why we confess every week, especially in Lent. We're trying to pursue him, and it's not just about giving up chocolate. It's about giving up ourselves. Let me close with an illustration that I find helpful from one of C.S. Lewis's novels from the Chronicles of Narnia. In the voyage of the Don Treader, there's a boat, a ship, and there is a boy that gets on the ship with some of the other boys. His name is Eustace, and he's cantankerous, and he's spoiled, and he's whiny, and he's just a nasty person. And the, the ship goes to this island, and he goes off on a little sojourn, and he finds a cave full of gold, all kinds of treasure. And he puts a, a big armlet on his bicep that's a gold like bracelet thing, and then he gets sleepy, and he lays down on the gold and falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he is a big, nasty green dragon. It's like his true nature has come out in the form of a green, scaly dragon, but his arm is killing him because his dragon arm is bigger than his boy arm, and the gold is cutting into his flesh, and it's hurting him, and it's making him like frustrated and angry, and he's flying around. Now he's a dragon, so he can fly. He's breathing fire, but all the other boys and the other people are on the boat, and he, he lets them know that he's Eustace, and they're not sure how to save him, and he He's dangerous, and so he finally decides he's got to get out of this dragon suit and become a boy again. So he starts cutting open his own skin and peeling it off, but every time he does, another dragon steps out, and he keeps doing this, and he can't get rid of it. And then the hero figure of the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure, shows up, and he says, you have to let me do it. You can't do it. You've got to lay down and let me do it. And he pulls out his, his, his 
sharp lion's paws, and Eustace lays down, and he cuts into him. And he says it smarted like crazy. It was so painful. And Aslan cuts the lion suit, peels it off, and out comes the boy Eustace again. And he's a boy. But he's transformed. He's different. He's no longer a nasty boy. He's somebody who's been healed by God. That's the, that's the image. That's the powerful thing. And it required him to stop trying to fix it himself and to bring it to the one who could. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means to lay down your life and give it over to God, whatever it is in your life. New life only comes through death, and there is no crown without a cross. So this is an invitation to life, more so than death, but it's through a death that you find the new life. This is discipleship. This is Christianity. This is what the church has always fought for and preached and proclaimed and why we exist. So I'm inviting you, especially in Lent, to press in further Do the real business with God. Expect more of him, not less. But give him your entire life and see what he'll do with it. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is hard, but such good news. And I pray for your spirit to come and help us because we don't like it. We resist it. Lord, you have so much more for us than we're experiencing even right now, even for those of us that have walked with you for many years and decades. Lord, give us the courage to keep going back. Help us to walk with you in this time, Lord. I pray that you would transform us more and more into your image each and every day. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.